everyone. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, here with you on this chilly and very icy day here in Boulder, Colorado. It's time for another one of our group shows. Joining me today is senior tech editor Dave Rome in Sydney, Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. We also have editor-in-chief Kaylee Fretz in Durango, Colorado. Where it is neither cold nor icy. How are you? Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It actually like, looks almost kind of sunny there. Like 55 and sunny. Yep. <sighs> yeah, I, I would love to come up with some sort of snarky return right now, but I can't. It's just it's, not going to happen. It's a significantly better place to live. Sorry, Boulder. Mm. Mm. Well, sitting right here next to me, enjoying this cold, icy weather, is Boulder Gruppetto, pro mechanic, Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. How is everyone today? Kaylee, I, I would like to hear not so much about the wonderful 55-degree weather that you have down there, but rather about your new 4-millimeter hex key. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I had to buy, I had to buy a whole uh, cupboard to get it. So it was actually quite an expensive four millimeter hex key. Uh, I lost the one that was in my, my park tool Allen key set. And so I just replaced it the, with the one in my most recent Ikea purchase. Dave is shaking straight. his head. Dave <laughs> is shaking his head for anyone who is not, well, for everyone who is not able to see him on video at the moment. It's almost as horrifying to me as uh, Ronan showing me video of his uh, cum fiber brace that's drilled into his leg and the fact that <laughs> bolts and nuts started falling out of it and then he went to the hospital and they just like used pliers to reinstall them. <laughs> almost. Almost. Gets the job done. Uh, Guar yeah. Guaranteed to round out any bolt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Zach, I'm curious if I wanted to buy an 11 speed Durace cassette right now, how many body parts would I have to sell? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> still, still Literally not so good, all huh? of them. Still not so good. Okay. No. The ETAs just keep getting pushed out on everything that I have backordered. Oh man. Well, this, this might go counter to what we might be talking about in a, a later segment of the show here, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Dave, I'm curious why are Tuesdays mm. about to be a very, very special day for you on Cycling Tips? Because they're the day after Monday. And who doesn't love a Monday? <laughs> That's not the answer uh, I was looking for, Dave. Not the answer. Oh, Incorrect. Sorry. Eh. Okay. Uh, is it related to Cool Tool Tuesday? It may very well be. Ooh, la, oh, la. yeah. Okay. So my, my, uh, my hobby, my Instagram page of Tool Nerdery is, uh, is going to become a cycling tips thing. Uh, so I'm told. And um, yes, for for years of being told to do less tool stuff and focus on the things that matter. <laughs> um, I'm having my day and Cool Tool Tuesday is coming to Cycling Tips. Yes, we have decided to finally take the shackles off of Dave Rome. Yeah. You are free to run, uh, Dave. Free to run. A, a big part of Cycling Tips is embracing the weirdness of each and every one of us. And that, frankly, is the weirdest attribute of you. So let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. But only on Tuesdays. And not every Tuesday. We Can only point be out. weird on Tuesdays. Yeah, We're, we'll work out the exact schedule. Yeah, it's coming. Uh, yeah, by the time you are listening to this, it's probably a day away. And and thankfully, that'll be it'll be Wade's first day of vacation. As a matter of fact, <laughs> which would co which will coincide nicely. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, well, anyway, as always, we have an excellent show in store for you today. We've got a whole bunch of tech news to talk about. Three new bikes, uh, a beloved small UK brand that is sadly going under. A notable acquisition, sometimes the COVID cycling bubble might finally be bursting. 
And of course, we'll have another round of Ask a Mechanic where we address the pressing technical questions of our Velo Club members. So let's get started. First up, let's talk some new bikes. Cannondale has a new Synapse. It's exactly what you might have expected in some ways, but most definitely a surprise in others. Dave, what did Cannondale decide to do here? Uh, so the bike itself, they've, they've got a new frame set here, which has it ticks a lot of boxes, uh, and it's not really what you'd expect from Cannondale, namely that it has no real proprietary components on it. It's got a threaded bottom bracket, it uses standard wheels, it's got... A round seat post of a regular size. It's got an external seat clamp, external cables. It does so much, so right. Um, but then they've put a whole bunch of proprietary, unusual electronics on it. Uh, so yeah, they've basically partnered with Lazine and Garmin, and they've got uh, daytime running lights and a radar running off a centralized battery that mounts to the downtrip of the frame. Uh, and that part, while they got the bikes so right, that part's proving a little polarizing uh, amongst readers. Well, so Dave, what is, I think, I think Cannondale was pretty clear as to what their thought was behind including all this stuff on the bike. So what exactly mm -hmm. was that motivation? Yeah, I mean, it's basically the idea that everyone riding the style of bike is now using these accessories and they're adding them to the bike and each accessory has separate batteries, which you then, every ride or every two rides you have to take off the bike and charge independently whereas their system allows the accessories to be on the bike they potentially could save a little bit of weight because each accessory doesn't have its own battery so there's no duplication there uh, and rather than charging individual accessories all you need to do is plug in a usb-c cable and charge the one battery uh, it's also uh, integrated with a, a wheel sensor so once you start rolling it's meant to trigger all the accessories to turn on uh, and yeah, so it's, it's just meant to simplify and ease the, the idea of riding safely with accessories. And then why is this so polarizing though? It's a good question. Uh, certainly it adds to the price point. I think people like the idea of having a bit of, uh, control over the accessories they put on their bike. Uh, and I think people feel like they're probably paying for this. Uh, it's also, I don't know. I don't know if it, I like the look of it. Maybe it's um, a little clumsier than I would have expected. Yeah, Zach, you've actually built one of these. Actually, uh, what do you? I'm staring at a wall of them right now. Yeah, I've actually fact. built a lot of them. <laughs> oh right, okay. Um, and yeah, as like overall, I would say I agree with you. Like the frame itself is super rad. Like kind of ticks all the boxes of bottom bracket and seat post and cable routing and normal tires, and it fits. Like I mean, it probably has clearance for thirty twos, thirty fours easily, um, which is pretty rad. And yeah, for the smart sense stuff i think initially i was very put off kind of like most of the commenters on the internet just like why do we need all this it's just a lot of extra electronics just to have one more thing to charge but yeah it does make sense if you're a person that runs runs front and rear lights and have like a garmin radar similar system on your bike and then yeah it's just one thing to charge rather than three um for myself personally like usually i just throw a little blinky on the rear and that seems to be a lot easier and smaller and kind of less obtrusive on the bike, I would say. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think they've, they've definitely taken a gamble there where they're, they're kind of assuming that a very large part of the market are interested in having that radar on their bike, which yeah. is actually quite true. That's a very popular accessory. And I think on a bike, like if it was, if this was on a race bike or something, you'd, you'd be like, of course, why would anybody want this? But right. But they wouldn't like, be putting this, this stuff on a race this bike. This bike, the who its market consumer is, is like, 
they're buying all these accessories anyway, so why not just have it on the bike and have it mount cleaner? Like the, the rear, like the light in Garmin radar, everything, it's so much nicer than the big, big bulky uh, radar mm-hmm. normal mount that people use. For sure. Yeah, J- James and I were discussing that one of the potential downsides, and obviously we haven't tested this bike yet, so I mean, it's 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 going to be something that we hope to do in the in the near future but i think my test bike is hanging on the wall as a matter of fact it oh is. there you go it's arranged <laughs> um but yeah the that longevity of the battery right it's a it's a large battery but it's they're, they're quoting it at about two hours if you're running the lights on full power uh which isn't isn't amazing i was actually talking to the marketing guy yesterday about this and basically the two hours on that's on like full bright full steady which meets mm-hmm. meets some european um, I can't remember some sort of law or something. Yeah, where, the and, STVO. Or- yeah, where Germany, I think it was, and maybe a couple of smaller countries. Like it has to have a, you have to have a solid light. So, but on normal flashing, it lasts much longer than that. But like any any light that's battery powered on full full solid beam is going to not last very long. Yeah, and Dave, how much does this whole thing weigh? Because if I remember correctly, it's nearly five hundred grams all in. Is yeah, that right? I think- I think they're quoting about 460 grams for, for, and that I believe includes all the internal wiring that's sort of running yeah. between the battery and the, yeah. The battery is not light. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That battery is basically, if you, if you have like a portable USB charging battery for your phone, like a backup battery, that's basically what this thing is. And it actually works as that as well. You can take it off the bike and use it as such a thing. So, right, but not at the same it's, time. It's a, it's a brick. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there are some, s- there are some legitimate criticisms here. Um, for one, yes, it does seem like it is potentially kind of overkill, especially if you already are running a standalone Garmin Varia system with your own computer, uh, with potentially a smaller daytime running uh, light up front. Um, so this whole thing does add a fair bit of bulk and weight. Um, you also don't get to choose your own lights. Um, and if, depending on which model, if you get a model that has all this stuff spec'd on it already, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. You're, you're getting it whether you want it or not. But I, I do think that Cannondale is on a pretty good path overall in a sense that, of targeting, uh, it, they clearly have a certain rider in mind. And I do believe that certain rider probably would actually want this stuff on there. I mean, I think if it were mine, I would take the huge front light off because I'm not like it's a big light that looks like one. you're riding at night. Like it, it's like an e-bike light. Yeah, yeah which I'm not going to go ride my road bike at night. So I would take that off and I wouldn't use the Garmin radar thing on the front end. I would pair it with my whatever head unit that I'm using. Which and you then, can do anyway. Which you can do, yeah, for sure. And then like save a bunch of weight because you don't have the front light. Clean up the front end a little bit and still have a rear blinky light and the radar. Like that to me makes the most sense. Yeah. Yeah, I just, for me, there's there's a few things that I wish it would do but i guess one of the main things at the top of my mind is that i wish it would charge your uh like you that you could charge your phone off of it or that you could charge your head unit off of it while riding so you can recharge that stuff once you stop riding once you take the battery off but i kind of wish it would just like have a plug that would let you keep it running never yeah, gonna yeah, ride long enough that i yeah. need to charge my garmin <laughs> <and ride. laughs> true true um so again i do like the idea of this i think in my ideal world However, um, things that I would love to see, I would love to see all of this be really, really running off of one central battery, particularly if you are, if you are running a bike that has the new Shimano DI2 stuff on there. 
Mm-hmm. That would be amazing. But that would mean Shalano and Garmin are working together, it, it and that would, would never it, happen. It, that's true. I mean, well, I didn't say in my <laughs> ideal world. I didn't say realistic world. But in my ideal world, there would be just that one battery. Um, and then also in my ideal world, all of this stuff would just be connected by those e-tube wires and like the new- But you don't have those anymore because it's well, wireless. But, but it's, you, can, you can if you want to. They, they can be connected. And let's just say in my ideal world, you did have that one central battery. It was connected- with wires, with the Garmin Varia radar thing, with a blinking front light of your choosing, and it was all operated on, to, on one battery. Like that actually at that point would be pretty cool. That would be very cool. And at that point it would make a lot of sense because you're, yeah, you're really easing the process there where and, you only have one battery to ever worry about. Yeah, and at that point everything really is truly integrated instead of trying to cobble together all of these third parties to try and cooperate, right? Yeah. Is it a good bike? Seems to be. Yeah, not that's good. And that's and that's that's sort of the the most interesting thing is Cannondale sort of have created this bike that looks so interesting and so worth buying, but then they've put all these accessories on where people are like, I don't know if I want that. Well, that's part. the thing you could always take that stuff off. Yeah, but you're I guess you've already paying. Yeah, you are already paying yeah. for it, and then you also have this big thing on the down tube, which I don't. Mm. I don't know. My guess is that they are probably. They, if you're not running it, there. There's a dummy I think, cover, I think, isn't there? Yeah, because one of the lower models don't come with it, and I think it's like a a plate that goes on that has like straps that you can strap down whatever you Repair want. Repair kit it. or something like that. Like yeah. the tubes and stuff. Yeah. yeah, that's all right. But yeah, I mean, you are definitely paying a premium for all this added electronics, which you know they're they're high end electronics. They're they're good products that they they've selected here. It's not a generic no brand light or radar. It's proven stuff. I mean, I think too, like at this point, it's. 2022 like everyone makes really really good bikes these days it's like as a bike company how are you going to differentiate yourself from like this synapse from say a roubaix or an endurance or any other sort of this category of bike like how are you going to separate well let's add all this stuff and integrate it that seems to be like what this is more doing rather than yeah, so it is you a bit sa- of- You sadly have a very valid point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if it's so sad. I mean, the thing that we always have to keep in mind is that when we are looking at different bikes and accessories, components, whatever, it's always important for all of us to keep in mind that we may not necessarily be the target buyer for this thing, right? Um, I mean, Zach, as you were saying, you, know, you, you don't really want a headlight like that. You don't necessarily maybe want all that extra stuff, but- you, as far as I can tell, are also not in the market for a bike like a Cannondale Synapse. For sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's kind of what I said, like at first when I was like, oh, why would anybody want all this? But it's like, okay, but I'm not, I'm not the customer for this bike. And someone out there already buys all these things and puts them on their bike. So why not right. clean so it up a bit? If someone were, you know, if, if someone were already into road riding or maybe wanted to get into it, had clearly a fair bit of money to, to put into it. Um, and they were at a shop and someone presents to them a bike that has these things built into it. Like if I were to, if, if I were a salesperson and I were talking to a potential customer and I said, this thing has a radar unit on the back of it that will tell you on your computer or on this little display thing, when a car is coming up behind you, that is probably going to come across as a pretty cool feature. Yeah. That, that was going to be my next point is that the bike shop pitch for this bike, I think is very effective, particularly for, again, the, 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 the the cyclists that we are talking about, right? That frankly probably doesn't listen to podcasts like this for all the minutia of every single little detail of all these things that are coming out, but shows up and wants a bike that's going to keep them safe and let them see and, you know, has things that in their mind vehicles have, right? <laughs> I think that, that that's a pretty, that's a pretty good pitch. If you're sitting on a shop floor, 
you know, you're, you're, you're trying to get these bikes out the door. I think that's going to be effective. Yeah. And while I would say the four of us probably generally have pretty analog preferences for a lot of things, uh, as far as the mainstream market goes, however, electronics are very much part of the normal everyday world now for most people. And so a lot of people are going to be looking at this bike they're going to see all these integrated electronics on it and they're going to think it's perfectly normal. And if anything, they may look at other bikes that don't have them and they might be thinking to themselves like, man, why didn't it have that stuff? So I don't know. It, it remains to be seen how good, the, well, again, the bike itself does seem like it's pretty good. Um, I'll find that soon enough. Uh, once we get this thing off the wall and once the ice has thawed off the road, so it's not a skating rink everywhere up here. Um, one last point is the way they've done this new bike, not with the electronics, but the actual bike itself, um, bodes very well and makes me very excited for the next generation of CAD. Oh, because if they can point, take Dave. the simplified features that they've done on the synapse here and just apply it to the CAD, um, I'm, I'm back. I'm, I'm going to buy one. You mean like the threaded BB and the, like all yeah, that? Get rid of yeah. AI and weird C well, posts. The, the CADs and... never had AI though. The road bikes never no. did. But that's... Yeah, that's one of my biggest complaints is like if you have, say, a Cannondale cyclocross bike and a Cannondale road bicycle, both have 700C wheels, both have mm -hmm. 12 by 100 and 12 by 142 axles, theoretically, you should be able to put your road wheels on your cross bike if you want to, but you can't at the current moment because <laughs> one of the bikes has offset rear wind. And that to me is just the silliest thing possible. Well, no, but I mean, I, I think it's just clear that someone at Cannondale is a NASCAR fan. Which you <laughs> always know, those, turn left. those cars always turn left, and now the way that the, that those teams are skirting the new rules, uh, apparently those cars are now constantly in sort of like crab walk mode. Like their cars are kind of like always skewed slightly, and uh, maybe that's just what they're going for with. Yeah, them. I mean, even I think for a while they're I think they're the scalpel and the hardtail were the same way. Like you couldn't interchange wheels between the two because one had mm -hmm. offset and the other one didn't, and that's just like, yeah, this frame gives me hope for Cannondale's next generation of bikes. Yeah. I think yeah. generally speaking, we're all big fans of things being a little more normal. So fingers crossed, we'll see how this bike is. We'll find out soon enough. Um, moving on, the next new bike, uh, Zach, I think you already mentioned this actually. Uh, the next new bike comes from Canyon in the form of its redesigned aluminum and carbon fiber Endurace, at least not the, not the top end version anyway. Um, this one looks pretty good for a variety of reasons. Uh, Dave, you wrote this one up as well, so I'll let you give us the lowdown. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, Canyon have introduced a new lower cost carbon option uh, in the way of the Endurace CF. Uh, and that joins the existing lineup of the CF SL and, the, and then the SLX. Um, but yeah, the CF, it, it's basically got a brand new frame. So it's a new frame design. It fits 35 mil quoted width now tires, which is pretty generous. Versus 33 before. Uh, yep. So that's up. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's got... A lot of familiar features like that integrated seat clamp where it sort of comes in at the seat stays remains, uh, which Canyon does to try increase the amount of flex available at the seat post. Uh, but yeah, they've gone up in size in the steerer tube to match the higher end models. Um, so it's a one and a quarter inch steerer. Um, but yeah, otherwise it's it's basically the bike you expect, but they've also changed the geometry. So the the, the Endurace has a, had a history of being sort of like somewhere between a race bike and most brands endurance road bikes in terms of the stack and reach figures it offered. Uh, whereas this one has got, yeah, it's just a bit more laid back. It's a bit more in line with where you'd expect an endurance bike to be in terms of the geometry. Uh, and then in addition to that, there's an even cheaper version out of, uh, in alloy, 
uh, the AL, and that's that's basically an update on a previous model. So it's it's a new frame to the previous model. So and it gets the same geometry and same features as the CF version. Uh, and just to keep people from yelling at us for not mentioning this, or if they think that this feature is not included, uh, it does have fender mounts, front and rear. Mm. Both of those. Yeah, I didn't see any clear images of what those look like. So uh, there are um, some add-on bits yeah. that you have to put on. So they're not like totally conventional. But if you do want to run fenders or mudguards, depending depending on where you are, um, that is an option. So I think that was a, a smart addition to make to this. Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember now if the old version had it. Uh, and I guess the new one also has uh, mounts for a top tube feed bag, if that's what you want to. Um, Very important. But one controversial change. Uh, which is quite interesting, considering that we were just uh, praising Canon now for going back to a threaded bottom bracket. Canyon actually went from a threaded bottom bracket to PressFit mm. 86. Why? Yeah, at least at least for its alloy frames. Uh, yeah, they've they've basically uh, more performance is what they're claiming. They've basically just made it all the same as the higher end models. I'm not sure it is actually cheaper to make for the alloy ones though. Because you don't have to worry about the threads. You just have a regular tube and just weld it on. Well, no, but it, it, it still has to be... Those, those press fit shells still have to be reamed be after, after welding. Yeah. Do they, though? They do, because otherwise they're incredibly... <laughs> well, otherwise they're incredibly warped. And well, yes. You, you would ha and they're just not going to fit, usually. Um, and then the, the threaded ones, it's, a, it's, a, it's an automated process. Like, the taps just come in and just, like, smash those threads in there. So I don't really... I actually don't know if it's any cheaper to do a press fit for it's probably aluminum. Like 30 cents cheaper. That just makes it, it even dumber then. Yeah. At, le at least well, save some money. I don't, I'm not <laughs> like, sure because here, here's the thing. So, so hear me out. Um, I have definitely been one of the most outspoken critics of press fit bottom brackets, I would say, at least among bike media anyway. Um, but as far as all looking at the whole landscape of various press fit bottom bracket systems that are out there, press fit 86 had, I guess, and the 92 mountain bike analog have been among the least problematic ones out there. This is true. Yep. Um, yep. And I still and don't want to have to use presses almost anywhere on my bicycle. But Kaylee, you don't the anyway. Only at least a hammer. Because then I have to go find two two by fours. I have to find my hammer. <laughs> <laughs> I have to figure out how to um, get it in there straight. No, seriously. Like, just let me screw the thing in and unscrew it. I don't like. Genuinely, we joke about my my lack of mechanical aptitude. But I, I mostly, I just, I don't see why I should have to press things into my bicycle. I, their threads were invented a very long time ago. They work great for installing and removing things. And I don't want to have to deal with anything else. But bicycles are pretty much the only industrial application, common industrial application, where you have cartridge bearings in a, some sort of tube where we have a separate threaded cup to hold that bearing into that tube in pretty much any other situation out there that bearing is just pressed in there. But any other situation that's industrial, it doesn't matter if it makes a bit of noise. Well, but this but, is the problem but, with press but, fit, is it? <laughs> yes. Well, but, but like I said, I mean, again, I have, I'm, I'm certainly no huge fan of press fit in general, but press fit 86 has been one of the certainly much less problematic press fit formats that are out there. Uh, in metal frames, that's another plus because it is easier to make those creak free than uh, than carbon fiber ones. And I want to remind people, threaded just just because something is threaded has never been a guarantee that it didn't creak anyway. Like one of the most common things I used to have to do when I was working as a mechanic full time was 
fixing people's threaded bottom bracket or fixing people's creaking threaded bottom brackets because those yeah those are not perfect either yeah and they can wear out but um i guess there's a few things uh, to mention here is that kenyan funnily enough in their in their press release did make a big deal that they're holding very tight tolerances with the bottom bracket shell so they're well aware that people are resistant to this as they should be yeah the other thing i think the way that they've widened the tire clearance, I, I suspect the the use of a press fit bottom bracket has something to do with exactly. that. Exactly, because the press fit system does give more weld area; it gives more width to attach the stays to. So I suspect that there's probably a a technical reason as to why they went this path. Right. Um, but I will say that while BB eighty six has a history of being quite problem free for us, and it is my favorite style of press fit bottom bracket. Um, I have to say it's really only great with a Shimano crank because you end up running pretty small bearings in there once you add like a 30 mil spindle. So as much as I like it, it, it is it just does still have its limits. How is it with a 28.99 millimeter diameter spindle? Much though? better. Much better. That <laughs> okay. extra one one point zero one mil just I mean totally transforms things. Realistically, it's probably so when they go to order their groups from Shimano that they say we want twenty thousand press fit bottom yes. brackets and don't have yeah. to do like and we would like 500 threaded ones. Just make it all the same. Yep. Yep. Nope. And and likewise for for a consumer point of view, I mean, this is a consumer direct brand. When someone says I've got a 2022 Endurace, what bottom bracket do I need? That answer is now much simpler. It's not like, oh, well, does your bike have welds or is it carbon fiber? And you know, it's it's simple. The least worst press fit is like, I don't know, the least poisonous snake or something. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna drop a series of poisonous snakes in James's basement, and just you only have to deal you only have to deal with the least poisonous one, James. <laughs> I'll send somebody in and get the other ones, but you only have to deal with the least poisonous one. There you wow, go. You're good way, to go. That's one way to put it. Huh, interesting. <laughs> I hadn't, hadn't really thought of it that way, but I hate not, it. Mm. I hate it so much. Just let me unscrew things. That's all I mean, to, I want. To, to be clear, to be clear, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of this decision by Canyon. However, at least they went with one of the less, one of the least terrible press fit systems that are the out least there. Least poisonous snake. They went with the and, least poisonous snake, James. And if 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 this is the change that did allow them to put uh, to to allow a 35 millimeter wide tire to fit in that frame, see, I hate that though. There's so many bikes. With welded tubes and threaded bottom brackets that have lots of tire clearance, there are. I don't know what the chain stay length is on this thing though. I don't. I'm really not, I haven't really. I haven't looked. I think it was four fifteen off the top of my head. Four fifteen is a pretty good chain stay length for an aluminum frame that can take a thirty five millimeter tire. And and historically, mm -hmm. I should also and point a double. Out, yeah, and historically, I should also point out that Canyon has been pretty conservative with their tire clearance claims. Um, so mm -hmm. my guess is that it probably takes a thirty seven. Um, so in that instance. Are people are there going to be more people who are happy about the increased tire clearance, or are there going to be more people who are going to be upset about the press fit bottom bracket? My guess is that the former is the case. Hot take: the person buying this lower model doesn't care either way. They're like, oh, this bike ticks all these boxes and is under this price point. Order. Well, all right. Well, on on that note, Canyon has kept the prices on this on these things quite low still. Um, so the the price points are pretty appealing, and there is also a new Tiagra model. Uh, and so the, the least expensive one is, ooh, what is it like 1500 euros? Mm, yeah. I, I can't remember. I'd have, I'd have to look at the, I'd have to look at the article on cycling tips again, just to, to verify, but, uh, all the prices that, that we have right now, I believe are only in euros. Is that right, Dave? 
I didn't have US pricing. I did have Australian pricing, which I think that entry level bike was like 2300 Australian. So it's like that's under two grand US. Oh, well okay. under. Yeah. 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 So in the grand scheme of things, I mean, Tiagra is really good stuff. Um, and Canyon's aluminum uh, endurance frames have been pretty good in the past. It does have pretty cheap wheels, but that's kind of to be expected, I guess, these days. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah. press fit bottom. 1400 euro. Oh, okay. There you go. So that's, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty solid price point. So press yeah. fit bottom bracket aside, I think there's a lot of things that we see here that we like. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, brand name wheels, like fulcrum wheels and yeah, Schwalbe tires. It's got like, yeah, everything's a brand name on it and it's got, except for the ba the base model does have an alloy seat post, but all the others get that like VCLS carbon seat post. So yeah, I think Canyon's actually done quite a lot here. That's pretty impressive. And to Zach's point where it's like the people buying this don't really care. Uh, I think what reinforces that is the fact that the people that do care probably can't buy one because they're sold out now. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that, that's a perfect segue into our next topic here, Dave. Uh, so we have another new bike, yet another new road bike. This one comes from Canadian brand Argon 18. Uh, the new Sum and Sum Pro, they're, they're all-rounder road racing bikes with you know, pretty much everything that we'd come to expect from the genre these days, like shallow profile, cam tail, truncated airfoil tube profiles, drop seat stays, uh, it's got a low claimed weight, some, somewhere around 850 grams, supposedly rides super smoothly. You know, they're saying that, again, in the, in the whole all-rounder category, it's kind of like semi-aero, yet still super light, rides comfortably, handles well, all that stuff. Uh, it actually looks pretty good, uh, but Argon 18, unfortunately, says that due to COVID-related supply chain issues, you actually won't be able to get one until late 2022. Uh, and then somewhat related to that, it, uh, we're also sad to report that the pandemic hasn't just delayed the availability of a new bike. Uh, it's also killed off um, rather much-loved UK brand Bowman Cycles. Uh, so uh, after an eight-year run of producing affordable and pretty versatile high-performance metal drop bar frames, the company has entered voluntary liquidation. Uh, so as Road.cc reported a couple months ago when it was clear the company really wasn't faring so well due to the pandemic. Uh, Bowman Cycles founder Neil Webb pretty explicitly cited COVID-fueled supply chain issues uh, as the reason for why the company wasn't doing well. They were basically were, according to him, they were getting essentially snuffed out by the bigger brands that were just hoarding everything. However, and Zach, we're definitely going to get your take on this, a recent article by Rick Vosper in Bicycle Retailer and Industry News suggests that we might actually be starting, just starting to come out of this whole supply chain mess in the bicycle world anyway, uh, with supposedly waning slightly, supposedly slightly waning consumer demand coupled with what are basically still raging production numbers and, and, and uh, order forecasts. So my question, however, and clearly I think we already know the answer here, is does it actually feel like things are getting better yet? Well, I guess first I'm going to go back to Argon 18. Why release a bicycle before there is a warehouse full of it to well, sell? The, it, like it, by it, the time the bike is available, people will have forgotten. Right. I mean, th this kind of harkens back to the old days of when companies used to launch stuff months before they're available. But um, in Argon 18's defense, uh, it seems like their hand was forced by the fact that this bike is going to be raced by their sponsored teams. Um, so it's going to be out all year. I don't know if there's some sort of, well... There might be, whether or not there is a UCI regulation on this, doesn't matter because no one follows yeah. it anyway. It's, it's but, more just to answer consumer question, really. Yeah, yeah it basically is, it, people are going to be seeing it all year, and apparently they just made the decision to just announce it now, even though you can't get it, just so that people at least know what they're looking at on screen. 
Yeah. There's also the idea that you kind of, uh, if you have loyal customers to the brand or customers that are really keen on that bike, you kind of stop their budget going elsewhere until that time. So you can kind of, you know, perhaps earn some pre-orders or at least make people hesitate buying a competing product and perhaps hold off for something like that. So um, there is merit to launching something, even if you don't have the stock to sell it straight away. Um, one little side note here, speaking of the whole supply chain thing and how it's affecting people. Um, so yes, Argon 18 did say that there, that people are not going to be able to buy this bike until late this year. So what I, next year. Yeah. yeah. So what I, <laughs> but what I found also interesting is that whenever a new bike is launched, especially one that is aimed at competition, some sort of higher end, uh, higher segment or higher end, more expensive segment of the market, that bike is always, always displayed and photographed with like the nicest stuff you can put on there. Like so the flagship group sets, carbon wheels, all this other stuff. The press pictures that we got for the Argon 18 are fitted with, uh, the, those bikes are fitted with SRAM rival access. So that might give you some indication as to how, how hard it is to get some stuff right now. I, I love the fact that traditionally a lot of these brands used to render the photos so yeah. like it'd just be you know like uh, uh you know the jurace groups that would be digitally put onto the frame and even that is too scarce to do now <laughs> well you know this you know it, it's, probably an, it's probably an <laughs> yeah. nft now you'd have to pay extra for the render yeah yeah i mean yeah the problem though like coming even i understand that the pro riders are going to be on it or whatever and you want to answer that question but let's say you come out with a bike now and it's not available until november or whatever of this year let's say theoretically those old frames are still in bike shops or wherever like all you're doing is devaluing the product that you already have that bike shops have paid for already and now they're going to have to put that product on sale because why oh, yeah. would someone want to pay full price when there's a new one coming uh, again does anyone the, the, have old stock there of argon 18 probably uh, hard to, <laughs> i don't know like does anyone have any old stock of anything that's not really clear but again this this is a pretty crummy situation like i, I have no doubt that this is not this is not how Argon 18 wanted for all this to go. Um, so my guess is that this was just a decision that they made kind of because they felt like they had to, not because they wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be happening quite a bit with new bike releases. I think that Synapse, for example, it was only due to land in Australia for sale in July, for example. So I think this is going to be the new norm for a little bit. Kaylee? What was Rick Vosper's argument what were his data points saying that we're coming out of this this problem? Because I personally don't see it. Yeah, I know, I know. I, I don't personally see it that way either. And Zach, I know that you don't. So it I might mean, not- like talking to talking to sales reps and stuff, they're optimistically like maybe within a year, but realistically probably like two or three years before things kind of normalize. All right. So so basically, Rick is sort of citing uh, a, a bunch of industry feedback. Some like this is so like from inside the industry, like kind of like insider baseball stuff. Um, and essentially what he's saying is that production numbers are still sky high, orders are still sky high, but, uh, things are starting to wane slightly in the, in the ordering and demand side. Um, and looking at that, he is saying that we are heading toward a situation where we might be starting to be in a better situation as far as what supply looks like versus demand. Uh, and then... What's particularly interesting is, and, and, he, and to be fair, he is not the only person who has suggested this. Um, there has been a lot of speculation as to what this, whole, what this whole thing might look like, like if it is an actual bubble and if it's going to burst or if it's going to be kind of a long-term 
long-term trend that we just have this continuing demand for a long time. But um, the reason why, for example, a lot of companies have not invested the funds to build new factories and like really put in this extra infrastructure to really keep up with this huge surge in demand that we have right now is because no one is certain that this demand will be long lasting. And according to him and according to the data that he was looking at, it doesn't seem like it is going to be certainly not at the levels that we're seeing right now. Um, and if we still have this huge, huge surge in production and we have all these orders that have been placed now year, like two years in advance, essentially, um, we might be heading for a little bit of, I mean, I'm not going to say a glut, but uh, we might be certainly heading for some sort of correction. Yeah, uh, there's some financial services that are speculating that um, the COVID boom has sort of created a lot of people to to move to product-based purchasing versus service-based purchasing. And they're sort of speculating that that at some point will end. And as a result, there'll be like almost a recession because there'll be overstock of product everywhere. Uh, and I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. I think, you know, that's, that's probably true, but I don't know if we're seeing that yet. No, um, no, and if we are seeing I, it, I think it's probably seasonal. It's just the fact that the U.S. is now in winter. Yeah, I, I don't think, I think Zach made it pretty clear. Like, it's not something that Zach or any other um, service shop or retailer or anything, I'm sure no one is really seeing that sort of change firsthand right now. Um, but if you, I, apparently, if you look further up the supply chain and look kind of like dig deeper into the ordering process and everything, then maybe we might be heading a little bit in that direction. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a bike shop that orders tons of bikes, so I'd, maybe I could be off here, but it seems like maybe things are slightly improving on the OE side, like these synapses, right? I have maybe like five or so of them and they all have the new Durace and Altegra on them. So like parts are available, but they're going to bike manufacturers. Like I've had- But that's how it's always been. Yeah, but I've had like group sets, the new Durace stuff backordered literally the week that it came out and I've still not seen any of it. So like there's stuff out there, it's just not in the hands of anyone unless you ordered it a year and a half ago. Which is kind of comes back to the Bowman thing, right? Is like, you know, Bowman was a, was a was a tiny little bike brand, and it's essentially running into the same issue that you're running into, Zach. Which is like, the you know the Cannondales of the world are hoovering this stuff up, and they're able to get groups. Not even the Cannondales, like the yeah. Trek specialized giants, essentially. And yeah. it's not like, even yeah. like like let's say group sets. I don't even care. Like, there's usually bigger projects that at this point people understand and it's are willing to wait. Like, we were going to do this project bike, and we're going to build it up with this is the group set that I want. But like, I still can't get chains. Like literally you can't get chains. And I've had chains backordered, let's say Shimano, for example, for, I don't know, like, I mean, I probably got some, the last batch I got, maybe we're in like October or something. And I've had dozens of them ordered, like not dozens, but like a lot more chains on order since then and haven't seen it. And the ETAs just keep getting pushed out and out. And like the problem that I'm seeing is like bike companies can't even tell you whether they have inventory or not bike companies, but like manufacturers can't even tell you if they have product on hand like one of the like one of the distributors not distributor parts manufacturer like their b2b the dealer site it shows they have a product in stock then you place an order and then it doesn't actually ship and you talk to them they're like well it's somewhere it's not in the warehouse we can't tell you if it's in the warehouse or if it's in a shipping container sitting in the parking lot that we've not unloaded yet or whether it's somewhere in asia still like and to me that's like on the very least, like at least get your inventory sorted so that you can show we have this in stock. It can ship now versus this is something that you can back order. And here's a rough estimate of when it'll show up. Right. It kind of feels like the box of medication for my dog right now, which has been somewhere between Las Vegas and here for the last six days. Yeah. Only 
Yeah. Six months. And this, this is something that was brought up in the interview with Ken Lusberg of, uh, of Shr- the CEO of SRAM is that he basically admitted that they've got the most amount of stock they've ever had on hand, but the freight and the logistics side of thing that COVID has caused, like just the sheer demand on containers and the lack of supply, that's the limitation here. So your chains probably exist. Shimano's probably made them. And you're, you know, they can fulfill that order. They just can't ship them to you. But like talking about that interview that James did with the Stream CEO, like he was talking about how we need to provide support for all these new riders that have came in the sport. Like someone bought a bike beginning of COVID. Great. They've ridden it a ton. And now they come to now and they've worn their drivetrain out. And you're like, well, sorry, we can't get a new cassette for you. You're going to have to like either ride this and it skips or you're going to have to wait until a cassette is available. Like that's not providing support to those new riders. Like the amount of people I've had to tell like, your drivetrain is worn out, stuff's not available. I would just ride it through the winter and the grime and hope that come spring parts are more available. Yeah, yeah. Fundamentally though, I think um, Rick Vosper isn't correct yet based on, based on I guess, all of our experience. But I think you'll know he's correct when you can walk into a shop and buy a whole group set on sale. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, he's correct. He's correct because he's saying at some point it will get better, which which is well, he, true. at some point, yes. <laughs> and like, he, he, you know. He's just saying that he is seeing the earliest signs of a correction, which, again, that sort of thing does take quite a long time to trickle down. So right. like um, anyone could say that about anything. Like at some point, this is going to get better. Well, I no, see but, the signs, but, 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 <laughs> like, but not the moon I, is in the right spot. Parts <laughs> will become available. Like, <laughs> but he's, I mean, so, supposedly he's not just like, you know, literally looking at tea leaves. I mean, he's looking at industry data right now and, and saying that things are starting to trend in the other direction. So it, we, we won't know for months if this is really what's going to happen, but it is something to keep in mind. And we've always known that it's not going to stay like this forever, but supposedly now he is seeing signs that it's starting. But then why do ETAs keep getting farther and farther and farther out? I was going to say, like, like, the other way to sort of think about that is basically what he's saying is it's not going to get any worse. If, we, if, we've, if we've tipped correct. over the top of the, of the bell curve mm. thing here, right, it, correct. then it's not going to get any worse. And Zach's saying it's getting worse. So I'm, not, I'm still not sure that we're actually at the top yet. Like, we will get year, there. It's not like six it's going to stay like this Six forever, months ago, a year but, ago, you could be like, okay... I can't get Shimano or SRAM chains, but like there's these KMC or Whipperman or whatever, like you could pick and choose. And now it's just like, well, literally nothing's in stock. And then competitive cyclist or some other massive retailer has bought up all of them and they're the only source for it. You can probably get one of those Taya Rololis chains. You can't actually. I looked. Oh, wow. Uh, desperate times. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Well, we, again, this is one of those things where we are going to have to wait and see if this actually comes to pass. But I have my fingers crossed that. Rick's data is hopefully correct and indicative that we are about to head into brighter times slightly. I mean, I can only hope he's right, but I do not think necessarily he is. So we'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, enough supply chain talk. I feel like this is something that we talk about on pretty much every show because it has dominated the cycling world, at least the tech world for the last year and a half or so. Uh, We also have an intriguing acquisition to talk about because SRAM just announced that it purchased kind of up-and-coming computer brand Hammerhead, uh, the making the maker of the uh, fairly popular Karoo 2. Um, so the, to be to, to make it clear, the Karoo 2 is not just another GPS cycling computer. I mean, it's basically a standalone Android-powered mobile device, and you can even put a SIM card in it. Um, and what's most interesting to me here is how SRAM might integrate it into the rest of its Axis ecosystem. Any thoughts on what this might look like? I guess first, 
Have you ever seen someone using one of these in the wild? A hammerhead? Yes. Uh, I've been playing with one. Besides you. <laughs> no. Exactly. Bes- besides, besides, this is, besides me and Raymaker from DC Rainmaker? Yeah, the only person I've ever seen use one was the previous one that looked like a Blackberry on your handlebars, well, and it was awful. Well, the old one was massive. Yeah, the original like, but one was I've massive. never seen one of these in the wild. So well, to me, this isn't that big of news because no one uses them. Well, here's the thing, though. It might not be that big of a news right now because, as you have pointed out, Hammerhead is pretty tiny. But what happens when you take that that product, that that design, that concept, and then you throw the, the R&D and marketing muscle of SRAM behind it? Yeah, they weren't buying a market. They're buying technology, right? Because otherwise they have to go develop the stuff up on their own. And that is, well, they did the calculation. That would be more expensive than simply buying this, this company. This yeah. And we don't know how much they paid for it. No, we did not. But, you know, if they could have done it themselves for cheaper, they would have done that. That would have made more sense. But And cheaper by, like, not just money, but if it would have taken them three years, that's time is money, right? So I, I think it makes sense. Again, they're not going to, like, immediately turn around and everybody who currently owns a, a hammerhead is going to want to buy SRAM or like that. That's not the purpose of this, right? It's just, it's just to buy the tech that they've got, which like I've, I've played with one that the, the, the latest generation is pretty cool. Like it's a cool little, it's great screen. Never bricked on me, which I can't say about most, most of the other options out there. Yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a pretty cool little bit of tech right now. The, the tech's also quite interesting. If you look at Quark's history in terms of doing stuff based on SIM cards and that type of thing. So it's a pretty niche application, but for a while there, Quark was trying to come up with a product that would relay like AMP plus data back to team cards. The collector. Um, yeah, and this could easily achieve that. I have to go to a meeting. Okay, well, Haley, unfortunately, <laughs> has to depart. He needs to leave us for another phone call that he has deemed more important. It's the, so, it's the Pella News tips. <laughs> Call. Okay. <laughs> I, I have to go. I have to go have a call with uh, our good friends over at Peloton Magazine and Velenews because we're all now the same company and we need to synergize and strategize. Well, well say hello to them for us. I will and it's okay because we're about to do the Ask a Mechanic segment anyway. And well, yeah. You don't really need me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Kaylee. Well, we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Okay. So as. As one of our Velo Club members um, actually already pointed out, currently all of SRAM's access stuff, and while there is some functionality that you can have on screen on like a Garmin or compatible Wahoo, that sort of thing, uh, nearly everything has to be done on the Axis app on a iOS or Android smartphone. However, with this hammerhead concept, and that's assuming that you just have it as the existing head unit, um, it would be very possible to just run all that access stuff directly on the head unit. So you wouldn't need your phone at all. I mean, we don't know what Stream is going to do with this. We don't. But why do I want my head unit to pair with my, like, I'm not going to do a mid-ride firmware update. Well, no, but, but again, we, and that's more or less all you do with the app. But well, it, you can, you can change your shifting stuff. And with, with the new RockShox flight attendant stuff, you can change your suspension settings. Um, again, I, 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 I always have to remind us that we are not necessarily always the target market for something that no, we're talking about. No, but I think about, like you can, historically, you could pair your DI2 or whatever to a Garmin or a Wahoo, like, and basically no one does that. Like, you don't need to look down at your head unit to see like, oh, what gear am I in? It's, should I shift to an Some easier gear now? Very few. Like, to me, it's, like I said, we don't know what SRAM is going to do with this technology. 
But yeah. like having your shifting paired to your head unit, I just, it seems like such a small thing that no one really needs. Like if you need to shift to an easier gear, you're going to shift to an easier gear. You're not going to look at your head unit first. Yeah, I think there's uh, something to be said about um, there's some brands in cycling that think more electronics on, on a bike is better. Yes. <laughs> um, like, pers- you know, I know you and I think more is just more, but SRAM's very much pushing a, a wholly electronic bike ecosystem, right? They've got yeah, the tire totally. whiz, they've got the the shock whiz equivalent, the flight attendant that you said on the mountain bike, the shifting, the dropper seat post, like it, the power meter, like there is so much here. And this latest acquisition in so many ways just is what ties it all together or what could tie it all together. So uh yeah i think i think we'll definitely see something here that that creates a quite a strong proposition at least for people that have bought into the the sram bike system right and there are a fair number of those people already and again looking at it from more of a mainstream perspective people are very very accustomed to electronics right now there's a there's pretty much an expectation that there is some level of advanced electronics in anything that they're paying a fair bit of money for um, and I think this is going to just play further into that narrative. Um, because again, while we are, we have generally, again, analog preferences in a lot of ways, that is not what a lot of people want or expect. And this sort of acquisition is going to provide SRAM with a big missing piece that they haven't had to put that whole ecosystem together. Crazy idea, but uh, it could, the brains of the of the head unit could be the control unit to automate things, right? You could potentially, potentially, once it's all linked up, have your power meter talk to your head unit, which works off of the GPS and the altimeter and makes your shifting and your dropper posts and your suspension automated. Oh, God, I hope uh, not. And there are people that would do that. You know, I mean, it's the same people that use synchro shift. I absolutely hate synchro shift settings on Shimano, but there's people that love the fact that they only have to worry about going up or down and the front shifting does itself. I mean, case in point, how many people are out there who bought a Tesla and who are like giddily activating their whole full self-driving autopilot thing so they think you just go crash into stuff inadvertently, of course. But there are a lot of people out there who just are super geeked out on this sort of idea. And... As you said, Dave, SRAM is very clearly committed to this sort of philosophy um, because it is something that sets them apart from Shimano for sure, and certainly from Campagnolo, but I don't really think they're worried about Campagnolo anymore anyway. Um, But um, it is certainly something that sets them apart, and particularly in the drop bar world where we've said on many occasions that, especially for road bikes in particular, technology the technology of the bike really hasn't advanced enough, in my view anyway, such that a bike available now is better enough than one from 10 years ago that you can justify spending a whole bunch of money for a new one. They're just not that different. So this is something that potentially you would use to differentiate something now versus what you had before. So I'm going to counterpoint. This latest Cannondale comes with all these electronics and the comment section on the internet was, we hate this. So now theoretically... Comment section on cycling tips. Exactly. It's a very dedicated... Yeah. But like theoretically... Let's say SRAM does all of this, and then you buy a SRAM equipped bike, to, and it comes with a head unit already. Are people now going to turn around and be upset because they have to use that head unit, and they're paying extra for it, even if they already have a Wahoo or a Garmin? Maybe. Don't know. I don't. I don't, I don't see that happening for a long time. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's possible that you could buy a group set that comes with all of this. 
you know, you could buy the electronics package. Maybe that might be the first step for this, but uh yeah i don't know i'm i'm just my mind's like just going in all sorts of places with this where like you could have a gravel bike that has tire whizzes and one of their new axis seat posts where it gets suspension mode if you drop it slightly and the head unit could basically feel the vibrations with the tire whiz it could know when you're off-road and then just automatically drop the post to be comfortable for you like there's all sorts of stuff where this could go i was reading yesterday well yeah yesterday on uh on pink bike there was dt swiss came out with a new remote a triple, triple dropper level thing. <laughs> yeah triple triple lever lockout dropper combination it's thing. What, what they'd made for scott yeah yeah basically the same thing as what's on scott and someone's one of the main comments on there was like instead of like anytime my seat post is down i want my suspension to be unlocked so how can we just combine that into making it when my seat post is down the suspension is unlocked danger home's already done it <laughs> yeah like and then when your seat post is up it's in the middle trail mode like why why overcomplicate things with all this extra stuff that doesn't necessarily need to be there? Mm-hmm. But again, the, asp- the the expectation, even from the part of that commenter, to a certain extent, is the idea that things on your bike in some ways should be automated to the point where you're not really thinking about stuff. And as much as this might seem like it doesn't really go along with that, this this whole thing with with SRAM access and his hammerhead and potential for integration and everything, that might be the sort of thing that that might be the exact sort of thing that they're trying to get to with that. So as much as people are complaining about that, that's kind of what they want. Like I, I always pull automotive analogies into stuff when we're talking about bike tech, but if you look at cars now, people expect that there's going to be a big touchscreen in there. People expect that it's going to be automatic this and automatic that. People expect that there's going to be like radar, radar adjusted cruise control. And like the, the expectation is that there's just all this, electronic junk in your car whether or not that's a good thing is neither here or there but that's what the expectation is now mm, stay tuned mm-hmm. all right well now that kaylee's gone i think it's safe for us to move into ask a mechanic derailers bearings disc brakes and rim brakes sealants and chain loops all right as always, all of our questions for Ask a Mechanic have come from our Vela Club members. And we've got a pretty good collection here. I'm not sure we're going to get through them all, but I'll let you go ahead and dive in. Uh, first one comes from Rob Stein. Uh, Zach, I'm particularly interested to hear your feedback on this one. What is the best method to remove bar tape residue, uh, as in all the bits that tore off while removing the old stuff? Uh, not the white salt crystals that are no, no, from no, no. winter of Zwifting? He, oh, he's okay. running carbon bars. So what's the deal with using something like nail polish remover, which is basically acetone, or something similar? What do you use, Zach? I mean, first of all, I absolutely hate this. Like oh, it's any, one of the worst any company ever. that makes bar tape that doesn't come off in mostly one piece and just leaves a strip of adhesive in a spiral around the entire handlebar should never support that company and buy any of their products. It is the worst thing possible. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> it sucks. Yeah, I mean, usually... You can very gently roll it off with the bar tape if it's starting to do it sometimes. Otherwise, yeah, just like you got to rub it off and you can use alcohol or, I mean, something like that. And it's usually decently effective, but yeah, no, it's never fun. It's it's going to be terrible to get off no matter what you do. And some of them are particularly bad because some of them have, some of them combine very, very strong adhesive with seemingly uh, very low strength foam that just wants to disintegrate yeah not and good it's oh, it's awful uh rob i'm not sure that we have a good suggestion it's for you not here, a good suggestion than, just yeah start trying to peel it off bit by bit 
Yeah, I use um, like brake cleaner and a rag and just kind of... Like a very aggressive solvent, basically. It's, yeah, like it's not acetone or something. It's not going to damage the clear coat of the bar, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, pretty it could, aggressive. Depending solvent. on the bar, like it could take off the logos if you're not careful. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but yeah. either way, even then it still can be pretty tough. Yeah, no, it's never, never fun. All right, Rob, bad news for you. We have no good suggestions for you. It's basically just not going to be fun. So hopefully whatever you are putting on there to replace your old bar tape is a lot easier to remove. So fingers crossed. Let us know how it goes. Uh, next question comes from Quentin Spencer. Quentin says, even the members of hashtag team tube inside at Cycling Tips seem to advocate for tubeless on gravel. Uh, Quentin is asking us to explain to him, a longtime roadie who's never tried tubeless, what he would gain by going tubeless on his gravel bike and what he's really signing up for in terms of maintenance. Uh, here's a situation. He says he rides 40 mil tires right now at 35 PSI with tubes inside already. Um, he doesn't do particularly high mileage, maybe like a thousand miles a year on his gravel bike. He said he can routinely do a year's riding with no flats. They don't have goat heads or sharp rocks where he rides. So the idea of doing extra maintenance while being able to drop a few extra PSI of pressure in his tires doesn't really sound like a worthwhile trade-off. He's wondering what he's missing. I don't know. I mean, if he's already running 40 mil tires at 35 PSI with tubes inside and he's not having issues with flats, then I would maybe switch to a latex tube just for like a lower weight and potentially better ride quality. But if he's not really having issues with flats right now, then... Don't fix what's not broken. Yeah, I, I'm not going to push you to go with tubeless here. Yeah, I mean, like he's asking, I'm team tube inside for my road bike, but on a gravel bike, I would definitely use tubeless because with 40 mils higher at 35 PSI, I would definitely pinch flat the inner tube. Right, well, for, at least for us around here yeah, anyway. Yeah, I would pinch flat because I did something stupid or like around here, we also have a lot of thorns. So when you have tubeless, you have sealant and the, you don't realize you hit the thorns and it's fine. But with inner tube, you ride through a bit and you have 20 thorns in your tire and you have a tire that's basically waste like done because you can't pick them all out. Yeah. I think it, I think it, yeah, it's, it's area dependent, right? If you're literally riding like perfectly smooth, well, perfectly groomed gravel roads, then you probably can get away with tubes and the, the benefits are a lot fewer and smaller versus someone that's underbiking all the time on, you know, single track and right. rough trails and, you know, where, where gravel roads aren't maintained. Um, yeah. you know, at that point, I think tubeless sort of becomes a, a must have feature. Yeah, so Quentin, sounds like you're having good luck with your setup right now and you're already running a pretty reasonable pressure, so stick with it. Like I said, maybe go with the latex tube, but otherwise I wouldn't I wouldn't go to wouldn't feel compelled to go with tubeless. So no need to buy a big bottle of, of latex goo for you. Uh next question comes from Mark Lawrenson. Uh Mark is having ongoing issues with his NV carbon seat post on his Ritchie Outback. Uh he's added quite a bit of friction paste to the tube and to the inside of the collar. Um, he said he's definitely uh, torquing the binder beyond spec as seemingly all Outback owners need to, from what he's gathered. Uh, he said he's probably getting cl probably closer to seven to eight Newton meters instead of five. And he said he thought he had it all sorted out before, but he went on a rather bumpy ride. And then he said the repeated banging on the joints has brought the slip back. What sort of suggestions do we have for him? Should he just go back to an alloy post? Uh, he said the envy matches his stem. So he'd really ideally like to keep it. Dave, this is something that you and I addressed uh, on the Velo Club Slack channel a little bit already, um, but just to toss this out into the greater world, BBB, and actually there are some other brands who make this identical part as well, or at least they sell this identical part anyway, um, but BBB makes an item called the Post Fix. Uh, it's basically like a little supplemental collar uh, that you clamp onto a 27.2 millimeter diameter seat post, uh, which is what Mark has. These sorts of things used to be 
practically standard issue in cobbled classics like Paris-Roubaix when, when bikes were all using round seat posts to keep them from slipping. Um, sort of just adds a little extra layer of security. They're cheap, they're small, they work well. I, I would try and find one of those. Um, Orbea actually used to include these stock on every bike that they sold way back in the day. So if you have a an old Orbea dealer uh, somewhere near you, maybe they have one in their drawer somewhere. Um, but I would get one of those, try it with the recommended torque setting then on the frame binder at that point first. Uh, and then otherwise, if it still slips, then you can, it sounds like you can safely go a little bit higher on the torque. Uh, but otherwise, that's pretty much the only suggestion I have for you if you want to stick with that carbon post. Zach, yeah, you got anything? I mean, it sounds, especially if other people are having this issue, it sounds like maybe the frames are made slightly oversized. Like they're 27.3 or something. Yeah, something which is quite unfortunate. Um, I mean, you could also just try... A different seat collar, like that has a. Mm, it's welded. Tall. Oh, it's welded. Never mm. mind then. Sad. Yeah. So yeah. Just one of those extra clamps on the seat post. Then it's probably about. Yeah. About the uh, best. Have, what's your take on different carbon pace? Like some are certainly better than others. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some. I feel like it's maybe it's the finish line stuff has like the, extra the, gritty. The beads seem larger, which maybe yeah. that could help. Um, or abrasive. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean. If it's oversized or the seat post is slightly undersized, you're only yeah. going to be able to do so much about that. Yeah. Mm. I'd also just say the the bolt, the binder bolt for the C-clamp, If uh, just make sure that that's greased um, behind the head as well. Because yeah. you know, if that's dry, your, your torque rating will be lower. Like the clamping force would be lower for the same torque rating. Yep. So Mark, that's our suggestion. Maybe let us know how that goes because um, fingers crossed that would actually fix your issue because that would be a, that's a lovely bike and hopefully you can get it to work. Uh, next question comes from a uh, U.S. Vela Club member. I'm assuming he's U.S. Uh, because of the question that he's asking here. Uh, Tim Bramer, got a new car. He's thinking about putting on a hitch-mounted rack. Uh, he likes the idea of the new Kuat Piston Pro with the add-on because uh, he needs to carry... Is that the Kashima one? Yes. A lot of rack. Got, he likes the idea of the Kuat Piston Pro with the, with the add-on because he currently needs to carry three bikes. Um, but it's an insanely pricey option for him, and you can't justify the cost. Go figure. It's very expensive. Uh, but bike-wise, he said he'll, he'll have his mountain bike or road bike uh, and then two kids' 20-inch bikes right now. Um, but those two kids are eight right now. They're soon going to be moving to 24-inch wheeled bikes. And then they also have a third child who's currently three, uh, but who will also be who will also have their own bike. So they need to be able to have a fourth tray at some point. They're asking what we would recommend. Uh, there were some suggestions that went back and forth on the Velo Club Slack channel already, but Tim, I, I would have to stick with, uh, what several people have recommended here already and going with the one-up, uh, tray style hitch mounted post or hitch mounted rack, mainly because of its modular design. Um, you can carry bikes of basically any wheel size on there. Certainly the ones that, that you're looking at, um, you can go with a three bike configuration now and then add on a fourth one later, which is something that you often cannot do. Most hitch-mounted racks are either two or four, not three. Um, and this rack is also not eight feet long. And, this, and it is, is remarkably compact because of that, that kind of tiered stadium seating style arrangement that they have on there. Um, so it does pack the bikes in pretty tight, which is also quite nice because especially when you have four bikes on there, you actually can get to the point, especially with, with kid bikes, which tend to be pretty heavy, um, you can get to the point where there's so much weight out back that it bottoms out the suspension on your car. Um, so these racks are slightly lighter, but yeah, more importantly, they, they keep them a little bit closer to the car. So there's not much, not as much leverage. Um, these one-up racks are pretty expensive, um, but seemingly all of them are. But one thing that's nice about the one-ups is, uh, while they are 
admittedly kind of quirky. Uh, they're not as quick and easy to operate as some other racks that are out there, but they're fully modular. They offer all the parts. Uh, they're easy to work on. The design has not changed a ton in ages. Um, again, you can get all the parts. It, it's You can work on it pretty easily. It's mostly aluminum, so it's not going to corrode. Uh, they are made pretty well. Um, they don't wobble back and forth like they don't. pretty much every other rack. They don't. They're quite stable. Um, again, the design, it, it looks very much like something someone made and designed in their garage, which I think is how it went originally. But it does work very well. And I don't know anyone, well, aside from my wife who doesn't like it, but, um, but I, I really know of almost no one who has one of those racks and doesn't rave about it. Yeah, I mean, I have one. I've never tried to put kids' bikes on, but it works great with mountain bikes and road bikes and combination of them and you can kind of shift the bike side to side so that the handlebars don't hit the saddle and yeah that's great yeah it's a good setup so that would be my recommendation uh saras used to make a, a three bike version of their mtr but even that wasn't going to be ideal because you can't very easily convert that to a four and there's a new company called uh quick rack that's uh seemingly kind of like an offshoot of the original one-up but those are ungodly expensive and also back ordered until the end of time um so yeah tim i'd go with the one-up personally that'd be my choice Next question comes from John Chenier. John has a what looked to be a DT Swiss aluminum freehub body on his wheel. He's got a lot of uh, cassette sprocket bite in that aluminum freehub body, and he's wondering how much bite damage is too much and what negative consequences can it cause? I mean, eventually it'll just go through in this cockle spin. That's a pretty. Have you ever seen one that's been that I have, extreme? I have, yes, unfortunately. Wow. Usually I would say most of the time, unless you just ride with the cassette lockering just completely loose, the cogs will dig in a little bit and then seemingly never go beyond that. But on rare occasions, it gets pretty bad for sure. Yeah, I would, I would say that, yeah, like the point where the cogs are digging in and the shifting ramps are no longer lining up as intended, then that's too far. Oh, wow. That is a pretty extreme case. Or if you're needing two chain whips to take the cassette off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. because when, the, when those sprockets do dig in a lot, it can be very difficult to get the cassette on and off. Um, so even once that cassette is off, which he already had it off already, I know that, uh, it's a good idea to take a file and just kind of like just knock off those high points on there. Um, and John, I don't know if you are pulling that cassette off to replace it with something else, but if you are able to replace it with something that uses um, kind of aluminum carriers instead of instead of a, a whole series of individual steel sprockets, that it, those are always, always easier on those aluminum free hub bodies than a full bank of steel sprockets. If he needs a new free hub body, I've not seen what his looks like, but DT also make a steel one. That... It's not that bad. It's, okay. not, it's yeah. not beyond repair. Yeah, uh, never mind. So, yeah, not too bad. And then, and then yeah, 40 newton meters on the, on the lock ring. It's, it's more than most people think. And grease the threads. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Next question. Uh... It's a good wheel question, actually. This one comes from Cam Bennett. I recently bought a bike, I bought, bought a used bike that came with Bontrager AOS uh, RSL 37 wheels, pretty high-end carbon wheel set. Um, recently, after about 500 miles on the bike, so was it like 800K or so, uh, he noticed some pinging sounds coming from the spokes. Uh, he, can hear, he can occasionally hear the pinging while he rides. Typically, he'll hear a smattering of ping, pings about five to 10 minutes after he finishes a ride, which is pretty wild. Uh, he took the he took the wheels to his local shop. Mechanic said the spoke tension was low, low by like half. Actually, he said his mechanic brought the tension back up, but noted that the wheel was going out of true very easily. He also greased the spoke crossings, and the mechanic recommended taking the wheel to a Trek store if the issue recurred. So he did notice pinging over the next few rides. Took the wheels to a local truck shop. 
They checked them out and said that the spoke tension looked good and the wheels were true. And he says, as of now, he doesn't really know what to do. The wheels keep pinging, but otherwise seem true and stable. I mean, if it's just a spoke noise, the, I mean, we've talked about this before, but black spokes, for whatever reason, the coating that's on them tends to make noise. But if they've already already lubed the crossings, then then that's kind of odd if multiple shops have checked the tension and everything. Um, I guess I would say, like, make sure that checking the tension while the tire is on and inflated would be a good one. If it continues, then I would, there could be something else going on that the Trek shop could send it back to Trek Service Tech Center and they could check it out and evaluate or replace if needed. Yeah, the the thing that really throws me off with this question is the fact that it makes the noise once after it he's done for a few minutes. Yeah, that's yeah, definitely weird. It makes me think it's not necessarily what what you'd think it is. Maybe it's like heat related from brakes or something weird like that. Yeah, I mean, I have seen that before. Where like if you have disc, I mean, I guess yeah, these wheels are disc only. But like where the rotor is really close to the pads and under heat, if you're mm -hmm. doing braking or whatever, it just kind of like tings and kind of sound could sound like spokes for a bit. But usually yeah. once they cool down, that goes away. So Cam, one thing that this is, this isn't something that we see very often now, but certainly this is something that wasn't entirely uncommon several years ago. The fact that you are getting pinging sounds after your ride is done. Uh, and this was even after your mechanic lubed the spoke crossings and stuff like that. Uh, it just makes me wonder if something is happening with the residual stress, it, or I guess the, the the prolonged stress of the spoke tension, kind of pulling everything. Uh, I actually wonder if your if your hub shell is cracking, and I actually wonder if that is the pinging that you hear, and I actually wonder if that is also why your wheel is going out of true very easily. Or the or the eyelets at the rim. Yeah, or something. Something. It 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 yeah. almost sounds to me like something is failing under the tension because Bontrager wheels typically. I mean, those use DT internals too. Yeah, so. they use DT internals, but um, but not DT shells necessarily. But Bontrager wheels typically have been built quite well. Um, the tensions generally seem to be pretty even. They're very straight and true. Like they seem to have their whole process dialed pretty well. Um, and you said this is a used bike, and the, you're having all all sorts of issues with this. I can't help but wonder if this wheel maybe had a pretty hard life. Um, so I think I have a set of those wheels here too. I'm thinking. Like the cross is pretty close to the hub shell, so it's mm -hmm. not like out in the middle of the spoke where there's a lot of flex. So, yeah, definitely a weird one. Yeah, so I I I certainly wonder if something is breaking in that. So I would I would take a very very close look at that hub shell, uh, especially at the spoke flanges and everything, and just check it out. Uh, and maybe, you know, I don't know. I mean, fortunately, you said you did bring them to your local truck store already, and they checked them out and said the spoke tension looked good and the wheels are true. Keep us posted on this one because I feel like this is something that we might have to follow up with you on a little bit. I guess too, just like sometimes sounds on bikes are weird. And just to rule it out, I would throw a different wheel on your bike and see if the noise still happens or doesn't. Just to rule it out that it's not the wheel, that it is the wheel. That is solid advice. Good suggestion. So anyway, yes, Cam, uh, follow up with us on this one. We'll, or maybe I'll just hit you up on the Slack channel. We'll just, we'll see what we can do here. We'll, we'll, we'll get this figured out. Uh, next one comes from Eric Geyer. Uh, Eric has an allied alpha with a wedge style seat post binder and the creaking he said is making him crazy. It's carbon fiber frame, carbon fiber seat post with an aluminum wedge style clamp, uh, with metal saddle rails. He said it's definitely in that system. He said it's not the cranks, pedals or bottom bracket only happens when he's seated. He can make it happen by shifting his weight in the saddle. Um, but he can't make it happen when the bike is in the repair stand or sitting still. He's tried a very thin layer of grease on the seat rails, reapplying grip compound on the seat post and frame joint, tightening things down, so on and so forth. Any thoughts? 
Uh, as it turns out, uh, my my neighbor has uh, also has an Alpha Allroad, uh, which uses the exact same clamp design. And I went ahead and reached out to Sam Pickman at Allied about this. Uh, he's their director of product and engineering. And uh, Eric, this is what he had to say. And uh, Paul, if you're listening to this podcast, hopefully this solves your issue too. Uh, so from Sam, quote, the way the Alpha is constructed, the C-tube sleeve is a separate molded piece that gets bonded in as a secondary operation. Sometimes some of the epoxy runs below the end of the sleeve. For whatever reason, epoxy in contact with a seat post causes a lot of noise. Have them remove the seat post and apply carbon assembly paste with something long so that they can coat the interior of the seat tube up to 110 millimeters down. Have them look into the seat tube. They should be able to see the epoxy that he's talking about. If the assembly paste has reached that point, then they should be able to reassemble and ride noise-free, unquote. Uh, I was just going to say, um, if you buy a bike called the Echo <laughs> and you want it to be silent, then... It's not an Echo, it's an Alpha. Oh, it's the same okay. design, though. Uh, but still, that, 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 that just means Dave's pun my falls joke, flat. My joke's yeah. worthless. I mean, I would say, I mean, that seat post design in particular, it's a really small clamping surface. And in my opinion, maybe not the greatest wedge system out there. Um, but I would, assuming it's not been done, but I would use grease on all of the wedge surfaces so that moves freely and then carbon paste on the inside of the seat post. And then it sounds like he's already done the saddle clamp itself. But sometimes you also get a creak in the cradle from where the saddle rails go into the saddle. So that could also be something that could be doing it. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Which is goes back to Zach's previous advice of changing the wheels on that last bike is... Change the saddle to rule that one out. Yeah, or just like throw a different seat post in there and see if it yeah. is yeah, the like frame, frame or the clamp or something. Yeah, Maybe borrow one for a bus of elimination. One. Yeah. Well, Eric, that is the suggestions that we have. That's, that's also, also the word from Sam. So hopefully that takes care of that too. And I have my fingers crossed for you because I hate creaking too. It drives me nuts. Uh, all right, last one before we wrap up for, for the day. This one comes from uh, Ang Ha. Uh, and I went back and forth with you on Slack on this one to make sure I got your, your name pronounced correctly. So hopefully I got that right. Um, he has a Shimano flat mount disc front brake that is squealing like no other, he said. Uh, made sure the caliper is aligned with the rotor. He's cleaned and sanded both the rotor and pads. He's running 140 millimeter rotors with resin pads. Do we have any ideas? Uh, he swapped pads last year. Uh, also having the same issue. He said, is he crazy to think that pads and rotors should last longer than this and not a yearly replacement? He's never had this issue on mountain bikes, running all sorts of conditions. Uh, it's a SRAM G2 on those mountain bikes, uh, and he's regularly washing his bikes. Uh, said he uses Simple Green on all of his bikes, and um, past summer, his mountain bike ran great. What do, we ha what do we suggest here? I mean, unfortunately, that just sounds like something with the brake area got contaminated. That's what I think, too. Like, and instead of just trying to sand it, like, as many times as I've tried that, it never actually works like it should. Like, you really have to burn just, out the contamination. Yeah, I would just start fresh. Like, if it's that, I mean, you can usually clean a rotor easier, but if it's seeming like he's went through another set of pads already, like, I would just do a new rotor and pads and start there. And then if it comes back again, like, maybe you have a leaky caliper or something else going on. But, I mean, just washing bikes with normal stuff and if it's not happening with his mountain bike it shouldn't necessarily be that that is something that we have noticed on occasion with shimano brake calipers that some of them do weep just a tiny bit amount of mineral oil out around the seals um and particularly if the bike 
Well, I guess even if the bike isn't is ridden pretty regularly, it, it you really can occasionally do absolutely everything right, and you can still get a little bit of contamination Just coming self contaminate. Yeah. I feel like I've had this happen to my mountain bike where it hangs up. During but it's the a winter. Shimano thing. Yeah, it hangs up during the winter, and then I go to ride it in the spring, and the brake pads are contaminated. Yep, which is yep. super super infuriating. Yeah, like there was a generation of XTR calipers that was that was. I guess notorious for doing that. Which yeah, I, still I mean the easy way to somewhere. check is just pull the pads out, and if there's a bit of oil residue on the back of the pad, then okay, that's the issue. Um, so that is one thing to look at. That's honestly probably the most likely culprit, I think. And if you are noticing some weeping, uh, then that is something that uh, I would most definitely contact Shimano about for a warranty, because uh, that shouldn't happen. Um, if there is no oil back there, then one thing I would maybe try is just switching up the the detergent that you're using for washing. Um, simple green should be okay. Um, but I know that there are various detergents out there that have different additives in there that can contaminate some pads, but not others. So on your mountain bike, you're running metallic pads, which generally are more resistant to contamination anyway. Um, but the resin pads seem to be a little bit more, a little bit more susceptible to that sort of thing. Um, I personally have always used Dawn dish soap, um, I don't know where you are and there it, this sort of thing does come in different names. Uh Dave, I think we've gone through this before and you've said what it's called in yep. Australia. Berry. Um I think. Berry. Okay. Well, mm. um I I've typically used Don dish soap. It's something that was recommended to me by uh, by race mechanics over the years because it it's it's got a lot of uh, pretty aggressive degreaser stuff in there and also doesn't seem to leave any residue. It doesn't seem to contaminate disc brake disc brake pads in particular. Um, so that's something I might switch to instead of simple green. I've never done it, but I've also heard of some downhill and enduro like world cup circuit guys, basically taking rotors and to clean them, they would boil them in hot, like obviously hot water if it's boiling, but an add dish soap to it. So basically just boil the rotors in soapy water and that interesting. cleans them, I guess. That is interesting. Wow. I, I was going to say the, the one thing I I've seen at world cups, like downhill world cups is, uh, they'll actually cover when they clean a bike, they'll actually if they're using any kind of cleaners around a bike or any kind of lubes, they'll actually go to the effort of covering the caliper and removing the wheels. So there's the braking surfaces are completely away from any of this chemical. Yep. Just pull or pull the rotors and pads off. Like if you really yep. don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And I, I actually do that myself. Like if I'm degreasing a chain on a bike, I'll actually, I'll put a, like a little bag over the caliper and I'll obviously take the wheel out and then use like a dummy hub for the, for the chain. Um, just so there's zero chance of contaminating it and, the same applies if I'm, if I'm spraying a bike with, with a, yeah, some yep. sort of cleaner. The other thing that I was going to say is even though you're not noticing any squealing or noise coming from the metallic pads on your mountain bike, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not slightly contaminated. Um, even just because you can't hear it doesn't mean that there's I mean, not Usually on a mountain bike too, you have a lot more dirt and grit that kind of just it scrapes everything off basically. But yeah, I, I would try a different detergent and I would... Uh, but I guess even before that, like Zach mentioned, pull the pads out of your road bike, look at the back of the backing pads and just see if there's even just the slightest hint of oil back there. Cause it, it is just going to be the tiny, tiny little amount. Like maybe even just like, like you'd maybe even just pick it up with like a, a, a piece of white loose leaf paper or like copy paper. That's something you can maybe. Yeah, and I guess to too, like I would check, like after you ride the bike, usually you get road dust and stuff, but basically where the hose connects or any of the bolts that hold the caliper together or anything like that, like. If there's a lot of dust around one area, then there's probably some sort of leak. So those are our suggestions. So uh, I'll follow up with you on on Slack about this too, and we'll see we'll see where this goes. All right, 
Well, that we did actually get through all these questions, except for the one big tool question, Dave, that I mentioned to you. Uh, that, save that for Cool Tool Tuesday. Well, you, you could potentially <laughs> save it for Cool Tool Tuesday, but Dave, I'm going to let you address this, address this one one-on-one because it, it, was, it was a big, it was a four-parter here. Ooh. Yeah, I'll, I'll answer it in the Velo Club Slack. Okay. All right. Well, that is our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed Nerd Alert as always. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, please go ahead and do so. Uh, if you haven't left us a rating or comment on iTunes, that would be very helpful because it certainly helps more people find the show. Uh, and maybe most importantly, please please tell your your fellow fellow nerds about Nerd Alert because it's always good for us to grow our audience on this show. I think you can also now rank podcasts in Spotify, which is, Ooh. if you're listening through that medium, then please do. And uh, yeah, just a reminder that we don't have advertising on this podcast because intentionally. it's intentional and it's also kind of our promotional tool to get people to sign up. So sign up. It makes a difference. Become a member. All right. With that, thanks again for listening. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye.